Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Mina Fazell is a professor of adolescent psychiatry at the University of Oxford and a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist at the Oxford Children's Hospital. She has been working for almost two decades on mental health issues concerning refugee populations with two focuses to her work. Firstly, how best to provide mental health services for populations who are hard to reach, which has led to an interest in school-based mental health services. She has worked with local CAMHS services to change how they work in schools. She also conducts the Oxwell Student Survey, which in 2021 had responses from over 30,000 students from 180 schools, guiding our understanding of what school-age students say they want and need. Her second interest is improving access to evidence-based trauma therapies, especially for young people suffering from PTSD and the use of narrative exposure therapy. She has an interest in and concern about the use of immigration detention for all refugees, especially children. In her clinical work, she is part of a team helping children and young people with chronic health difficulties at the Oxford Children's Hospital. Welcome, Mina. I know that you work across so many different areas of mental health, well-being for children and young people, but we're here today to talk about your fantastic work in the area of supporting children who are refugees. Tell us about why you're so excited to be working in this area and what you're doing currently. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk about this area that's very close to my heart and I think really important and actually speaks to the crux of what we're interested in. For those of us that work with children and those that are trying to learn and manage their emotions and their environment, because refugee children, in a way, bring all of that to the head. So I started working in this field about two decades ago. I became involved in a project helping refugee children at schools. And that really highlighted to me the importance of what we call the post-migration environment. So refugee children, by definition of becoming a refugee, have probably experienced quite a number of difficulties in their home countries, which has forced them to flee, and which many of us are fully aware of, just by reading the news and being aware of current events. But what surprised me then and took me back was actually how complicated it was for many of these refugee children when they arrived in their so-called countries of refuge. So what we also term the post-migration environment, that many of these young children were referring to the experiences they were having in the UK at this time as incredibly traumatic. But actually, for some of them, it was worse than the original traumatic experiences from which they had fled in their countries of origin. And so that has started me on a path of curiosity and learning, really thinking about how we can best help refugee children in environments like the UK today and how to help them settle. 
It's very disappointing, isn't it? And sort of counterintuitive to imagine that, you know, you think children arrive here and everything's going to be fine. You know, they're included in all the services, they get all the support they need. But your research has highlighted that that is not the case. And you conducted a very large review, didn't you, of the existing literature concerning the mental health of child refugees settling in high income countries. So presumably you mentioned England, but is it the case sort of across other countries that refugee children also on entry to that host country also experience trauma, sort of entry trauma, if you like? Well, we see in the data across a whole range of high-income nations as well as low-middle-income country nations as well, these difficulties. So, you know, the vast majority of refugee populations move to neighbouring countries, and these are often low-middle-income countries and so relatively low resource settings and so there are totally different pressures and complexities arriving in a neighboring country versus coming to these high income settings these countries that much better resourced education health structures in the community to support these refugees and yet we see that you know across the board these are challenging experiences so there are more studies conducted in North America, for example, in Canada and America, quite a number in Sweden, Belgium, Germany, like across the board, really, we're seeing relatively similar phenomena happening. So I would think that our learning in England is really probably comparable to learning in other contexts as well. Now, whilst it's said, I think, in a lot of your work, there's no single refugee experience, there must be sort of risk factors and also sort of protective factors that we can draw out in terms of the group that you have looked at? That's right. So there is, you know, there are so many different countries of origin of refugees arriving to so many different countries of refuge and in between so many different experiences in that transition as well. And so we have to be aware that there are many, many different experiences, of course, that these individuals come with. But what we know from pooling the data across studies is that exposure to potentially traumatic events and the sheer number of those events that an individual might have been exposed to does increase their risk for later psychological difficulties. So that's the first. So that's the strongest across every single study that if you've been exposed to one versus if you've been exposed to 50, that you're far more likely, uh, you know, with time, with accumulation to experience more difficulties. There are other more interesting and important findings as well. So how you arrive, in what context, with what family structure, if any family structure, also does play a part. But what part that plays isn't straightforward. So in some studies, for example, looking at refugee children in North America, if a female refugee arrives with their family, they might have different outcomes than if a male refugee child arrives with their family. So there are different protective factors depending on the circumstances and the differences, I think, between the host nation culturally and the original culture that those individuals come from. We also know, so I think living circumstances is important. I think the number of moves is also important. So we know that the more moves, it's not rocket science, you know, the more you move these individuals, the more likely it is that it's going to be increasingly difficult for these children to manage and adjust. And so what is not uncommon in many high-income nations is that families arrive in one place and they might be moved multiple times in those first few years of settlement 
because the housing decisions aren't taken by those families, they're taken by external organisations. And so those moves then for a child often entails an entire move from one school from which they were a total stranger, didn't know the language or the culture or the system or any individuals. If you're moved, you know, to a, to a neighbouring city, that's for a child a massive move because, again, they're going to have to manage that whole transition again when they're coming from a position where actually there might have been a lot of instability in their education already. So there are aspects like that as well, which we know are very important and why actually I'm a massive proponent of us doing everything we can to ensure that the first few months of settlement, everything is invested in, that we actually try and ensure that stability is granted and facilitated as soon as possible, because that can only be to the developmental advantage of the children involved. Isn't it also the case, though, that I've heard on the radio, you know, refugee families been placed in a hotel for six months and the fatigue, it sounds nice living in a hotel, but the fatigue and the stress of living in one room and having also big transport journeys to schools and that can also be incredibly traumatic, but may not necessarily on the face of it be traumatic. Yes, well, you know, I don't think any of us would want to live in a hotel for longer than a few days, especially if we're raising children, you know, children who might be craving food that they're familiar with and you know and at times of the day that food in the restaurant at the hotel might not be available you know so I can't conceive of how you would raise your family and a child who's at school within that kind of context you know it's bad enough for the odd week you know so, you know and some people like it that's fine but to raise a family in those contexts is terribly demeaning and actually robs those families of the things that keep families together you know the things nurturing you know gathering together having some agency you know these are individuals and families who've probably lost agency in the vast majority of decisions and then you remove their agency and all these other bits of kind of normal human behavior as well that I would be very concerned like I completely understand that some element of refugee flow can't always be predicted but and so there needs to be emergency provision but that emergency provision really needs to be seen as emergency provision. There cannot be a reason why this continues longer than the shortest period of time possible, which within a week we should be able to sort out, given the resources available to the countries that are dealing with this. So based on what we know from your work that's optimal in terms of that induction, the first few weeks of settlement that you seem to suggest is quite critical, if you and I were to dream up the sort of the, the best possible scenario, it sounds like the kind of the welcome would be warm, the accommodation would be at least, you know, we would tell families where they're going and how long they'll be staying there and there would be consistency in terms of educational provision. There might be familiar foods, you know, all those things, the softer things that I think are very meaningful for families. What else would you put into that sort of package of support that would mitigate sort of mental health difficulties later? So I think like my learning and my thinking about this, obviously, I think about this a lot and I'm very curious and interested in it. I do think that what our reading and our learning has shown is that we don't really understand much about how to help families belong in a community. So, you know, schools often contact us and say, you know, we've got five refugees coming into our school next week. What do we do? And I think schools are often really trying hard to address the educational, learning, language needs of these individuals that arrive. But there's something much bigger that happens in school. And so it's 
stepping back and thinking, well, what are you as a school doing to prepare your whole school community for the privilege of having these young people enter your school? So how can we prepare other children to understand the needs of any child that arrives at a non-traditional point of entry? So you don't necessarily need to say, okay, children, sit down, let's think what it's like to be a refugee, because that's probably a little bit harsh and, and a bit kind of unsophisticated. But you could probably be like, you know, what are the challenges of children that just arrive who don't know anyone at school? What can we do as a school community to welcome these families? You know, what types of structures or after-school clubs or whole school thinking might actually enable these families to settle in a way that enables them to build authentic networks? Because what we see across many schools is actually an incredible willingness and eagerness from the staffing perspective to try and make these young children, you know, feel welcome, feel settled. But actually the next step of parents at the school gate reaching out to these other parents, you know, observing how to enable some kind of meaningful relationship to happen across these linguistic, cultural, often religious divides that the school actually, I think, can play a really, really key role. And, you know, we interviewed refugee children, unaccompanied minors, and those who had come with families. And we interviewed them in kind of Wales, England, and Scotland. And I interviewed about 60 of these children, and not one could give me an account of going into the home of, you know, a a local white family and eating a meal or feeling welcome, you know, years after arrival. So there's one step about helping these children settle in the educational environment of school, but actually, School is so much more important than that. There's so much more richness. And there's interesting studies showing that the refugee children who feel a sense of belonging with their schools actually do much better. And I think, what do you do as a school then? What do you do as a community? Well, I think we can look around for examples of good practice. So lots of schools are doing really innovative things. So we have to find a way to just share that and help and put our hands up and say, we don't know what's, what to do or how to happen. You know, I've been observing quite a few of the newest wave of refugees arriving in the UK. So we've had very large numbers of Afghan refugees come over the last 12 to 24 months. And now families from the Ukraine and, and actually like, you know, I'm struggling to see good examples of these children integrating well beyond the classroom. So those families that I know personally very well are not being invited. You know, these children are not being invited, you know, after months and months at school to any other homes. And for me to observe that, it's just really difficult. You know, there's so much more to settling in a country than having stable housing, although that's really important. Actually, we need to find ways to build these kind of authentic networks as well. And the importance of welcome. And I think the Ukrainian refugee crisis has been a very, you must have been fascinated, remain fascinated by, you know, it seems to be at one point, the entire country was extremely motivated to support and help. There was no sort of question of a warm welcome. There were Ukrainian flags going up in villages and all sorts of interesting symbols of inclusion. But, and also a lot of Ukrainian families living with British families as well. So that's interesting. But do you think that people might be a little bit afraid of language barriers? So they don't want to invite families if they don't know how to communicate. Is that a big factor in the sort of, you know, the inability to include others in social events and birthday parties and things like that that are so meaningful to children? 
language must be a big factor and there's very good data from studies to show that actually language acquisition is probably the strongest predictor of families settling well because it opens the door to employment as well as being able to build those networks. So language has to be a factor, but especially in the early wave of the Ukrainian refugee flows to the UK, many of the refugees who came were very, very fluent in English because they're the ones that could navigate the immigration system. So so that can't be the only reason because actually still there isn't great settling. So obviously many of these families take great comfort in each other's company, like we all do. You know, if no matter where I end up, if I have to move, I've always got, you know, I'll find a lot in common with individuals who've gone through similar experience to me. But stepping back and observing, I don't know. I just, I don't know whether, you know, we just haven't really, you know, I think there were other structures in society that used to do this well, and those institutions aren't as prominent. So many faith communities used to do a lot of this. And in communities where these faith communities aren't as strong or as prominent, it's not clear who's now playing that role. And this is where it feels like whether schools like it or not, schools are probably the best place in order to facilitate this. But then, you know, what's happened with all of these refugees flows is that there's a great kind of responsibility that schools have because they, I think, are best place to do a lot of this, but it's come with no resource to schools. So if we think about the latest refugee flow with the Ukrainians and the Afghan refugees that came a few months before as well, what we've got is schools who have just been grappling with the COVID epidemic. They're actually like struggling on their knees. These teachers probably haven't had a moment's rest in months. They're managing hybrid teaching technique, you know, thing. they're managing classrooms with individuals who might not have been sitting still for a few months in education at home. So they've arrived into contexts that were already strained. And then it doesn't seem like additional resource was put into schools in order to help facilitate this kind of taking on additional children. So I think, you know, I think we also just have to be really thoughtful about our resources and our allocation of resources. And actually, schools were not sufficiently resourced because if well resourced, actually, schools could play such a key role, not only for the children, but also for the families and actually enhance that whole experience and for everyone involved. Because obviously, it's going to be highly enriching for, for the local children to have children from other cultures and other contexts arrive in school because you get a much better way to learn and to learn about, you know, a whole range of complexities that, I don't know, some of them might experience later on in their own lives. So I do think that we've missed a trick by not really going, actually, we need to really think about the needs of schools, we need to talk to them, you know, because the one thing is that schools should do it, but it doesn't necessarily mean schools should resource it or school, you know, other factors can't play. So I'm very passionate that schools are important but also that this is everyone's responsibility every parent at the school gate's responsibility every parent of a child who has a refugee child in their class is responsibility as well what about screening for mental health issues for you know trauma i know a lot of teachers pastoral staff in schools are desperate to find out if that child has mental health issues and be able to, to to develop sort of pathways to support. But what is your advice for those schools in terms of using screening tools? Is there anything they can helpfully use or should be using in order to identify the most vulnerable? So I think 
all our learning shows that let's get them settled well first. So, you know, if a child has experienced a rage of a rage of potentially traumatic events, you know, if they've had to move and studied and then they come into a school environment where they feel unwelcome, they're bullied, which is actually an incredibly common experience for any of these children. No one talks to their family if they come with a family, they're impoverished as well then actually it's no surprise that they might have some psychological, mental, emotional, behavioural difficulties alongside that. So let's first step back and say, actually, how can we make sure this family settles well first? Let's find a way to support them on a whole range of levels in the classroom, outside the classroom, outside of school, in our communities. So what I'm saying is that you might need to screen, but first, before we need to screen, let's just do absolutely everything we can to mitigate the need for additional input and actually helping kids settle, make them feel their sense of belonging, genuine kind of community involvement. We know that all of these factors enhance mental health. So it might be that they need additional support, but first let's put these other factors in. And then if those other factors are there and the kids still aren't able to engage with the curriculum or thrive, it might be that then further much more detailed assessment will need to take place to to find out if they've got any kind of difficulties that, you know, they might be neurodivergent, they might have specific language difficulties, they might be depressed, they might have post-traumatic stress disorder. But those, I think, we, we don't need to jump in and just screen for all of that immediately. Let's first kind of put all our resources to make these young people feel settled, help them build their social networks, because in a way that might help them manage and cope better in the long term. So I think there is interest in screening, but I think actually the first step is just to get that environment sorted first. And thinking about the structure for their own resilience. So thinking about, you know, schools really caring and investing in that sense of belonging and knowing that that is a protective asset because they want to do everything for them. So how can they increase that sense of belonging? And paying attention to relationships, staff developing, you know, positive relationships with those children. So these are all things people can do. Teachers are great at already doing that and building rapport with families. In terms of practical things, I know, I believe you've produced a toolbox of strategies for teachers to use with refugee children. And I understand it contains seven different things that teachers can consider using to help children feel safe, supported and capable of coping. So let's hear about it. It sounds brilliant. (laughs) So basically, as a teacher, you just don't know what's going to come in in the door. You don't know what a young kid might need. So we just thought of a kind of the need to have a toolbox up your sleeve to bring out whenever you might get the opportunity to help young people. So firstly, I think children who are more, what, what would we say, less likely to access services, either because they, you know, they've got a family who are very concerned about a, a negative label of mental illness, or they have other reasons why they don't access services or what we call hard to reach populations or sometimes labeled more vulnerable. Anyway, for these populations, it's really clear that probably they'll turn to a teacher before they'll turn to some stranger in a mental health service. So actually teachers also are just a key stepping stone. So it's also to give teachers the tool for that. So we came up with kind of a toolbox that that we could teach teachers in a quick two hour training session because who's got time (laughs) to do more than that? 
of different strategies that are likely to be helpful. And from our study, there were a number that they used most, so I'll tell you about three of those. So one is really to talk a lot about sleep. So we know that across the board and across most mental illnesses, so whether that's anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress or whatever, that sleep is disturbed. And so it might be that actually just thinking about sleep and arming young people with better knowledge about how to sleep better might help across the board with a range of mental health problems. So the first one was just to, to talk about sleep and the importance of how to improve sleep and thinking about the environment in which you sleep, thinking about the patterns of your sleep cycles and to think about things and ways to help you relax. So one was around sleep and our data and findings show that actually a lot of teachers utilise that once they'd learned about it. Another one we did, we did a lot of kind of relaxation techniques. I also just mentioned a bit of the sleep as well. So just teaching a range of relaxation techniques, for example, deep breathing. So that would be, you know, you put your hand on your stomach and you breathe in slowly. And when you breathe in the hand, your hand on your stomach is the one that has to move out. So just teaching kind of how to breathe deeply is something that actually people don't necessarily do or something called the peaceful scene. So anyway, there's something, there's kind of techniques around that. And then another one they use quite a lot, which I was happy to see being used is what we call the treasure box. Um, so these are all kind of very commonly used techniques across the psychological talking therapies. But the treasure box is kind of getting a young person to either draw a box or bring in a box or imagine a box, and then to put inside the box those things that they find helpful when things are difficult for them. So for example, if you're very anxious and you're at your peak anxiety, what types of things might help you if you're very depressed and you're feeling incredibly low? So depending on what that young person is experiencing, they would put inside the box the things that would help them at the moment of where it's worst. And you talk to them about the different things they could put in. So for some children, that would be, you know, the name of a person uh, and an example of the text they would write them, or it would be a piece of music that uplifts them because music can lift your mood and also bring it down. It could be, uh, you know, a favourite book that you've read many, whatever. For every child, that would be different, but it's really important to have a selection of things in there and to work with them. So that's just a taste of some of the tools. that. So sort of touchstones, you know, literally things that they can touch and feel that regulate, help them regulate their emotion and mood. So that's something a lot of teachers, I think, intuitively would be able to very much enjoy that exercise. You mentioned behavioral activation in one of your papers. What is that for for non-psychologists? How would you describe that and how could a teacher use it? So this comes from quite interesting research. So basically, you know, people have feelings like I feel sad. They have thoughts, which is I am a terrible person, which is why I feel sad. So the thoughts link to the feelings. And a lot of talking therapies are challenging those thoughts. So cognitive behavior therapy is one of those that would challenge the thought that then leads to that feeling. But there's another part to that, which is the action. So if I feel sad and I feel I'm a terrible person, I might stay in my room and avoid other people. So there's an action that's often associated with it. What behavioral activation does is just focuses on the actions that an individual does. And it looks at kind of Life isn't only about doing pleasurable activities, you know, but it's also about accomplishment or achievement or completion of a task. So it's trying to kind of, it looks at the things 
an easy starting point, looking at the things that individual was probably doing a few months before that they've stopped doing if they've got new difficulties and saying, well, which one of these actions, regardless of what you're thinking and how you're feeling, let's just change the action. So let's walk, you know, let's contact a friend and say, let's go to the cinema, even though you think your friends will see you or whatever, or it's walking home a different route so that you can pass the park and see something beautiful. Or it's, so it's just, and that's called behavioral activation. So you're kind of changing your behaviors to bring in a little bit more pleasure or a little bit more of a sense of achievement. It could be that you empty the dishwasher. So that's those are all examples of it because actually the theory is that actually that can enhance the mood to the same level, if not more, than actually challenging the underlying thoughts. So sort of promoting proactivity, really. Promoting, yes. And yes. just, you know, it's just many of us, you know, feel better after we've done a task, even if we don't want to do the task. You know, and it's just finding ways to embed that kind of thinking in there. So something teachers often ask me, and it's very interesting that they do, that they're very interested in the right question, being able to ask the right question that opens up a dialogue about how a young person is doing or feeling. And there can be quite a lot of reticence to lean in and to reach in because it's scary, right? If you're not a psychologist or a doctor to ask a young person how they're doing What sentence starters would you give school staff who've noticed that young person sleeping in class or they look very down or depressed? Just sort of sentence starters that they can have confidence in are the right thing to say. Okay. Well, the first thing I'd say is young people are incredibly intuitive and they they feel people's motivations very strongly. So on one level, if you really care about that individual child and you are genuinely concerned about them, no matter what you say, I think that child will notice it. <laughs> okay, so the first thing is please don't worry. It is so much more important to reach out than not to reach out. Because a child that's experienced trauma, for example, often people are aware or think or suspect that they might have had something terrible happen to them but nobody actually wants to go and talk to them because they're worried they'll say the wrong thing or they'll open a Pandora's box and then they won't know how to control it or they don't actually have enough time today in case that kid needs to sit and speak for an hour. But actually what happens from the perspective of that child is that the message they're getting subliminally from almost everyone around them is, ah, don't talk to me. No, no, don't tell me. Oh, I can't hear it today. So I think the first thing is just to let people know that we would say that what we call open questions is probably quite helpful. So instead of a question that would lead to a yes or no answer, to ask a question that does not lead to a yes or no answer. So I would say, for example, if you're a teacher and you've got a kid in your class that you're a little bit more concerned about, I would say something like, you know, hey, Johnny, I just want you to know that I'm here if you need to talk to me. Or, you know, I've noticed that, you know, your work is a little bit late and is there anything I can do to help you with that? Or, you know, you you look a little bit withdrawn in class. Is there anything I can do to help? You know, just, I think just anything to just say, look, I'm here, I listen to you. I don't think you should worry. You know, I think the kid will feel it if you're genuine. And, you know, if you're like, I really, I feel I should ask questions, but I don't want to hear the answer and I'm definitely the wrong person to talk to, they're not going to tell you. You know, they're no. just not going to tell you. But also the thing I would say is, 
you as that teacher, although you're super busy, you have a million things on your plate and you're not trained to do this, you might be the only person that kid would ever open up to and talk to. So I don't ever think you should see yourself as being in the therapeutic chair. You're not the therapist, but you might be the facilitator to enable that child to get help. I don't know how to help you. This isn't anything, but I'm really going to, I'm happy to sit and work out with you how we can get you some help. Lovely. Now, we understand you set up a school-based mental health service for refugee children in Oxford. Can you tell us about that service and how it actually works? And is it something that's permanent? Is it a, a model that could be replicated elsewhere in the country or in other countries? So we initially set up a school-based mental health service for refugee children. So that was on the premise that basically we knew there were many refugee children in the city of Oxford, but we weren't necessarily seeing that representation in services. So we were like, there was some mismatch here between possible need or predicted need and actual accessibility of services. So that's really started me on this whole thing now, which is basically what I want to spend the rest of my life doing, if anyone will ever fund me, thinking about how to address these, what we call barriers to accessing care. So what we then did was on the back of funding from a third sector organisation, a charity, is set up a service inside schools where we met regularly with teachers and would talk about the refugee children that arrived in the school. So basically in the hope that we would never have to see those children, that actually we could make the environment one that would hopefully mitigate a lot of the perpetuating problems that might be going on. So really to work with the environment and the teachers and support them, but actually if there were problems or difficulties that seemed kind of evident that services would need to get involved, that we would actually get involved in school, that those teachers that knew the families would let the families know about the service if it was appropriate, would accompany them either to part of the first meeting or to the whole. Depending on what the need was, you could be very responsive. But how much easier it would be, and it seemed to be, for children and families to come to a service in school where they already knew the location, they felt secure, versus going to a completely strange, alien kind of outpatient community clinic setting. So it has worked well, presumably. So it worked. What we saw was that we were able to access and and help many, many more children than would have ever accessed services. But what actually came out on the back of that was that the teachers would be saying to us, thanks, you know, we've had this discussion now about FG kids. Do you have 10 minutes to talk about what the other kids are worried about at school? So actually, from the perspective of teachers, they're like, you know, we've got like 10 kids we want to talk to you about. It's really only talking about three of them doesn't actually meet our needs. So on the back of that, we're like, fair enough, really. So we then were able to go to our commissioners and and make an argument to actually pilot this in a few schools in a little more detail about actually setting up a school-based mental health services. So that schools often have a lot of contact with child and adolescent mental health services on a on the basis around specific children. So this kid, you know, everyone gets together and talks about kid X and then kid Y and kid Z, but no one actually comes and talks to the school about the whole kind of environment and certain kind of classroom dynamics and bigger picture stuff. So it was to kind of facilitate that consultation as early as possible about how to support it. And on the back of that, we saw quite a lot of changes happening in Oxford, a lot of momentum building up around much better working across services and schools. And now there's a whole government green paper where across the country, really, 
we're learning a lot more about these types of provision. And so what we're doing in Oxford has become now part of the bigger learning around the green paper, which is, you know, some similarities and differences to what we were doing. Now, I understand you've also produced a podcast series for professionals working with refugee children. Is that accurate? That's right, actually. So, you know, there's so many different individuals for whom are concerned and want to do their best. So through the University of Oxford podcast series we set up, we we did um, a series just to kind of share everything we knew about kind of the, the science and the kind of interventions and understandings of interventions. So there are some interventions I think are really important and interesting and valuable, like, for example, narrative exposure therapy, which is a treatment for individuals who've got what we call complex PTSD. So haven't experienced one traumatic event only, but a whole range of them and very kind of accessible treatments for these populations. So very, very kind of, I'm very keen to to maximize the ways that we can kind of share this information. Like with the toolbox, one group wanted to learn more about the toolbox of schools. So I put a video on YouTube so that, you know, one night I put it up so anyone can watch it. So very keen to, you know, have ideas and learn about how to make this of maximum value to anyone. So that podcast series, was that as part of the University of Oxford? How can people access it if we advertise the link, say, to our schools? Yeah, that's very easy to find through okay. the University of Oxford, through my own website. I can share the link with you okay. as well. That's- we shall do that. Thank you. Now, are there any other key resources you'd recommend to school? Any beneficial training programs? I think, you know, any great charities doing amazing work that we should all know about in this area that we could even support? So I think the charities is really very locally driven. So in every local area, I think there are there are different charities doing things. What I would say is there are unbelievable things being done in schools across the country, probably in your local area. And actually, what we need to do is just build up more networks where people are sharing this live. You know, this is what I did. Please just share it. If you think you've got a model of good practice, just share it. You're not, it's of no benefit to be humble at these moments. I think just kind of, you know, actually, because schools are often keen for ideas and thoughts and, you know, World Food Day has worked for some. Let's do it for all these others because actually this isn't about being a refugee. This is about celebrating cultural diversity, for example. And there are ways that this can be done. So I think just it is unbelievable how many interesting resources are out there. But, you know, we still don't know kind of how to help local communities, native populations do that better. So always to just think about that, that actually what is it that will enable people to bring and open their hearts and their homes and their hearths to actually make this meaningful for these really kind of, these individuals who, for you know, they've done absolutely nothing to become a refugee. It's not their fault. You know, this is totally innocent individuals whose lives are completely uprooted by circumstances entirely out of their control. And what can we do to help them? I should say that I'm aware of some very interesting computer games that develop empathy towards, it's about refugee journeys and you sort of enter the world of the refugee and you have to make a decision, you know, at a port or you have to make a So there, I'll try and dig them out and attach them to the notes of this podcast. So there are some interesting things we can do as families to develop yeah. that kind of empathy. Yeah for that person they're not just seen as refugee that these are people like us who have been put in very difficult circumstances and putting yourself in the shoes of that person 
which I think schools can do a lot of work on, and also literature that looks at the journey of the refugee. You know, so what have we got in our curricula that can really enable families to have dialogue about the refugee experience. So I think there's lots of other things we can do that even if we're not directly supporting a refugee family, we can certainly help shape our own children's thinking in this area. Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of the kids that we spoke to who have done quite well have managed to build their social networks around sport often. So that is often a lot more accessible to males than females. So those are males that are in a football team or a cricket team often, you know, because many of the Afghan refugees play cricket, for example, were able to describe a lot more positive experiences of settling than others. So for many of the female populations, it wasn't as clear, you know, what the equivalent was. And I think schools need to think about their extracurricular offer and their, you know, the unstructured time. And actually, what is it that could potentially be of interest to every child at every age that would enable them, you know, and some have started chess clubs, Some have started dance or knitting or cooking, you know, so they're just ways to enable those kind of natural networks to develop. We wrote a paper, we called it the moment of change, just reflecting on, you know, what refugee children often refer to this moment of change where everything changed for them, where, for example, they'd been offered psychological support for two years, but they were then able to take it up or they finally felt like they should start studying or something. And We looked at this moment of change and, you know, my hypothesis at the outset would have been, oh, it's something like the day they got their refugee status, because all these asylum seekers are living in this kind of hole of, you know, worry that every single night they're worried that the knock will come on their door at four in the morning to remove them back to their countries of origin. But actually, in all these cases, the moment of change was when they felt they'd been accepted by local kids in their local school. You know, oh. so it was like it wasn't the day they got X or Y or arrived. Well, it was the day that, like every kid in every school, they want to feel part of that school and they want to feel they have friends. And actually, the dramatic changes that took place for those kids after they felt that. So that's why, you know, we just talk about this belonging now. I think it's just so important. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much for your time and for your work and for all that you do for children and families. And Professor Mina Fazel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.